<laughs> this episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 178 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Paul Cantrell. Hello, also from Minneapolis. And it's uh, Cantrell, accents on the first syllable. Gotcha. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? I'm pretty sure we've had you on the show before, but we haven't had you on for a while, so... Sure. I see that my my fame has not spread far and wide. Um, <laughs> I'm a freelance developer and software consultant here in the Twin Cities. I work mostly with bust-out solutions. Uh, I also teach part-time at McAllister College, teach computer science, and uh, help students there build software projects. Uh, and I'm also a quasi-professional uh, pianist and composer at times. And I'm the author of the Siesta library for Swift, some of you may have used, and occasionally have dabbled in the Swift evolution list. And what does the Siesta library do? Siesta is a toolkit for writing primarily iOS and also Mac apps that use RESTful APIs. It is, in very brief, an observable in-memory cache of the state of every RESTful endpoint that you might be interested in. Its purpose is to uh, prevent redundant requests, to clean up redundant network handling code, and in particular to disentangle the sort of stateful messes that result from traditional callback-based networking. Its effect is, is to give a sort of reactive flavor to your app without having to go all-in reactive. And there was, in fact, a, an entire previous iFreaks about it, so you could check that out if you're interested in hearing more. That would be episode 124, Siesta with Paul Cantrell. Awesome. So it's been 54 episodes. So right around a year, right? Because we release every week. Sounds right. I think it was last spring, I want to say, that I was on. Maybe more like seven months. Nobody would accuse you of not keeping busy. <laughs> gotcha. So, so what are you working on these days, Paul? Well, as usual, I'm doing a lot of language hopping. I am maintaining Siesta, working on some iOS stuff. I also usually have one or two uh, Rails-based apps in the mix and end up often against my wishes uh, working on things written in JavaScript these days. It's sort of the C++ of our time. Everyone loves to hate it, but everyone needs it. I know, right? Not uh, JavaScript. I guess C++ is also the C++ of our time. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, JavaScript. We could do a whole episode on what I hate about JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did a whole episode of that on JavaScript Jabber, and we like JavaScript, so. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a lovely language except for all of its problems. Yep. And uh, an awful mess with a decent language screaming to be free, which I guess is the whole ECMAScript effort. And 
God bless him. More power to him. Yeah, we did bring you on to talk about Swift. I'm not quite sure where to start. I think James had some idea. Yeah, you had done a talk at Minibar, our local massive unconference that we have every year. And you talked a little bit about the philosophy of Swift, how the creators of Swift had you know, designed the language to influence how we actually write the language. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it's this language hopping that I constantly do that um, exposes me to different developer subcultures centered around different libraries and languages. And something that I've noticed is that I, I think we greatly overestimate the universality of our own best practices. We do something that makes a lot of sense in Swift or in Ruby or in JavaScript and feel like we found the one truth about writing good code when in fact what we've found is something that's uh, very well optimized to the language we're writing in right now. So one example of that I think everyone could probably relate to is working with Ruby for the first time. Uh, for years I'd been doing Java, C++, lots of very statically typed languages. I was a little freaked out by how little help the compiler gave me. But I found in Ruby and JavaScript projects, first of all, testing is a much stronger component of more, most projects. And second, especially with Ruby, there's a much greater emphasis on minimalism and avoiding repetition and making code express very clearly only the things that are unique or relevant to the situation at hand. That is, eschewing the kind of boilerplate that uh, people complain about, especially in Java, a lot. And um, we often frame that as, you know, is it is it better to have a language that has less boilerplate, or is it better to have a language that's clearer and more explicit? Um, but moving back and forth between the worlds, what I see is that both models work. You just have to think very differently. If you have a language with less boilerplate, you need to make all of your tools and idioms much more concise and expressive and self-explanatory so that what they seem to imply is truer to what the code actually does. For example, Rails. Rails is just a bunch of conventions that try to look like plain English when used correctly. And that becomes much more important if you're relying on convention instead of compiler checking to make sure that what a human reader sees and what a compiler sees are actually the same thing. So I had all of that rattling around in my head. And then uh, Chris Latner made a really interesting post in the early days of Swift Evolution, where he seemed to be saying uh, a lot of the same things. And uh, his term was programmer model. He said, we're very interested in the programmer model for Swift. He said, we're not really interested in what's the absolute right way or what the language can or can't do. He said, uh, whether it's possible in a language is rarely the right question. He says, we're interested in what the language encourages and discourages. And we're also interested in what best practices and programming habits result from the language encouraging or discouraging particular things. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I, I saw a tweet once where it says, what do you want to complain about? A, too much boilerplate, or B, too much magic. <laughs> Exactly so. Pick, pick, your, pick your poison. So how do you think Swift encourages us in this, in this way? Well, the, the example that Chris Latner gave in that discussion I thought was really illuminating and much simpler than anything I'd thought to think of. He said, 
why did we call it let and not const? It's because if it took more keystrokes to make a variable immutable, then people would want to use the shorter form. They would probably come up with some rationale about how it's better just to say var everywhere because that's more consistent, even though it may stem in part from it being also more verbose. And thus the language would just very subtly discourage mutability. And here he's worried about how many keystrokes a keyword takes, right? But let shows up a lot in Swift code. And uh, I have to admit, if I had to type const, maybe I would be just slightly more reluctant to uh, make things immutable first. Um, but in fact, he's right, even before that comment in Swift code, I tend to always just sort of start with let and see if I need to make it mutable. And if I am making it mutable, I think about why I'm doing that. And that general pattern, I would say, is very typical of Swift which is that I start with something that is smaller or more obvious or more concise, more the language default, then something forces me to break out of that default. And that moment of departing from the simplest thing corresponds to a moment of thinking deeply about the design of my problem asking myself, why do I have this problem? Why am I trying to make this mutable? Why am I trying to make this thing not be optional or be optional? Why is the compiler asking me to stop and think here? And that idiom of compiler message turns into moment of big picture self-reflection. That I would say is very typical of Swift and not necessarily of all even strongly typed languages. Well, it makes a lot of sense. It's like a thing in the you're probably going, are you sure you want to do this? Does this make sense? Yeah. So uh, by contrast, you know, Swift optionals look a lot like things that functional languages have been doing for a long time. Uh, Haskell had something like this. And Haskell, I think, is a, a great thing for any programmer to learn a bit of and read about. You know, most interesting language features you're going to see somewhere else may have been tried in Haskell first. But one of Haskell's big downfalls is, I think it's designers really aren't thinking in quite the same way. For example, in Swift 1, if, if anybody remembers working with Swift 1, optionals were super frustrating. When I dabbled in, and I never developed a serious app in Swift 1 for precisely this reason, uh, there were so many unwrapping conveniences that just weren't there. So many things that I thought should have been implicit conversions where the compiler made me double unwrap something or explicitly state what seemed like it should have been an obvious type conversion. And there were a lot of APIs where things that were marked optional that really shouldn't be. They forced me to deal with a nil case where the nil case didn't mean anything. And at that moment, I thought, oh, this optional business, yeah, it's nice in theory, but it was annoying in functional languages, and now it's annoying here too. Lo and behold, in Swift 2, they, the compiler team put a lot of work into unseen implicit conversions where, say, assigning to an optional variable from a non-optional variable always worked where it maybe didn't quite always work before. And APIs that had everything marked optional because they came from Objective-C got properly annotated, and now all of a sudden UIKit didn't return optional everything everywhere. And suddenly in Swift 2, the experience was that if the compiler was giving me trouble about optionals, 
it wasn't forcing me to think about the language and how annoyed I was. It was forcing me to think about my code. Why is this optional, Paul? What, why could this be optional here? There's something you haven't thought of. There's a state transition in the corner case. There's, there's a reason to stop and think. And that reason to stop and think, it's about your code and your app and your problem. It's not just Swift being annoying. And the shift there, it's profound from being asked to worry about the language to being asked to worry about my own code. That shift hinged on some pretty sugary and minor things, some syntactic conveniences, better APIs. So what are some examples of the compiler? Yeah. What are some examples of the syntactic sugar that helped the transition? Oh, I was afraid you'd ask that. It's been too long for me to remember minute details. Well, we, we, had the, we, we had the pyramid of doom. Yeah. Swift one. Yeah. So one, well, w- one thing that I uh, definitely remember from Swift one is that I got double optionals all the time and it wasn't clear why. And so the sugar of just the compiler uh, finding cases where optional optional didn't make any sense and removing them, that was huge. Things like the guard clause were huge. Its utility is not obvious at first, but what it does is it lets you peel off cases where things are optional at the top of a block rather than having a bunch of nesting. The ability to unwrap a bunch of of optionals using a single if let 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 separated by commas, that turned out to be huge. Uh, There's, you know, maybe half a dozen language features like that that made it so that in in good Swift 2 and now Swift 3 code, you just don't see deeply nested pyramids of if let, if let, if let, six levels down. That's now a a big bad code smell instead of the norm. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it was a little bit of an unfair question. That that transition was a year ago and we've all we've all forgotten exactly what what happened and you know we're on Swift three now. So what examples in you know, Swift three influence the the developers, I guess, defaults for how they they write code. Well, the big one I would say is the the grand renaming, which uh, if you haven't encountered net yet, you're about to. There was a lot of back and forth on Swift evolution. I think one of the most hotly contested threads ever was about what the naming convention should be for the first parameters of methods and functions. And the Swift 2 default is that most of the time, the first parameter just doesn't have a name, except in certain circumstances. There was a lot of community pushback on that. I would say this is a rare case where the the Apple team was pulled away from their original direction to some extent by, by community input. Developers on the list seem to feel that, no, the part of the method name that comes to the left of the parenthesis should really be focus more on what is this method or family of overloads. And the things that come inside the parentheses should be the things that are more focused on the parameters. And we've ended up with this uh, fairly convoluted set of API guidelines that actually make quite a lot of sense once you see them play out in practice. So if you're converting your code to Swift 3 and you're using UIKit, you'll notice that the migration assistant suggests renaming lots and lots of methods in these sort of minor ways that end up reading a lot better instead of method names like wash dishes with sink full of forks and knives open parentheses you'll see wash dishes open parenthesis with colon sink comma and etc the effect that this has had is 
first of all, I think it's made the language more friendly to really using argument labels as a way of grouping similar things and expressing overloading relationships. Second, it's made the labeled arguments make a lot more sense at the actual call sites. And that second one, I think it took us year and a half, maybe, of working with Swift to get out of the habit of seeing Objective-C. I am quite certain that the reason that Swift in its earlier versions first said, well, usually first arguments shouldn't have a label, is just because that looked like Objective-C. That's what we were used to seeing. There was a lot of familiar familiarity bias for us to train ourselves out of. And it took some time to get unfamiliar with Objective-C before everyone could see how clearly its conventions didn't actually make perfect sense. Uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a good point because I I definitely saw the you know the Swift one and two conventions where you had the name as part of the method name as a hangover from Objective C. And in some ways, that's a good point. That's a, that was a good thing because one of the things that I really when I really got Objective C was how clear the naming of the methods could be, which my code never had when I was writing C It didn't have it when I was writing. C sharp or you know anything like that. So I, having the verbose names was something that was helpful. But I definitely agree that now I, now that I see with Swift three, it's like yes, I have clear names and I'm not you know I have, I have clear intention of what I'm trying to do without loading all things that should be in the parameter in the method name. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, perhaps my favorite new point of the uh, uh, the API guidelines for Swift three is uh, it, it slips by unnoticed, but it's a biggie. It says argument labels should not contain words that are already present in the names of types, but they should compensate for weak type information. So there's a mouthful. What does that mean? That means that if I'm, say, calling a method that's like delete file at path, that path argument is probably a string. And if it's a string, what is that string? The string could be a path, it could be a URL, it could be the name of your pet, who knows? In that case, string doesn't completely say what the role of that argument is. And so it's good to say delete file with path. If, however, we had a path type, struct path can only contain things that are actually paths on the file system, then you would just say delete file with colon, and then a value that is a path. So if the type of the variable tells you what its role is, then you don't need to also say that in the argument. And that one rule right there has cleaned up uh, interacting with UIKit just inconceivably <laughs> when, you, when you make the Swift 3 migration. It's, it's amazing how much nicer uh, these verbose labels look. It's not an obvious thing. Uh, but when you see it in practice, wow, does it have a nice effect? Well, it also seems like you end up a lot of with a lot of prepositions for your labels, and that almost it almost makes a, a sentence in English almost. Yeah, the API guidelines say that you should uh, their phrases strive for fluency, and what they mean by fluency is make the method read like a sentence at least for the first argument or two. They they actually explicitly say it's okay not to make all of the arguments read like a sentence all the way to the end, especially if some of them are defaulted. But at least the method name and its first or second argument should read like a phrase. So a good example of how this migration helped is uh, look at the changes in the API for string. 
instead of having things like uh, name string by replacing occurrences of string with string, blah, 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 blah. I can't even remember how many times it said string in the old method name. Now you just have string replacing occurrences of blah with blah. You don't need to say string over and over and over. And the non-repetition of that not helpful word makes the code so much easier to read. Uh, and something I learned from Ruby is that both terseness and verbosity are enemies of clarity. That is meaningless repetition of things that don't convey information, things that lower the data ink ratio of code in, in Edward Tufte's terminology, things that make each character just a little less valuable to read, they train your eyes to ignore things. If there's a lot of repetition in your code, a lot of boilerplate, a lot of non-information bearing characters, you start skimming over stuff. You have to. And that means that you miss bugs. Conversely, extreme terseness can be a source of confusion and bugs because there's too much implied, too much magic. And we're still calibrating the balance between those things. And Swift 3, I think, has shifted that balance a lot just with these API conventions. So how do you strike the right balance between verbosity and terseness? Is it just a function of the language, or do the developers have a say in it too? I think we all do. I think one of the, uh, the lessons of Swift evolution in every successful open source language is that uh, things work best when we have a little dialogue between theory and practice. So we develop something that makes sense after discussion. We try it in the wild. We see how it plays out. We discover where it succeeded and failed, and then we iterate, uh, you know, like, like good design of everything. And yes, language design is also a kind of design and obeys the same design principles. Uh, like, for example, the first job of any design, and I mean graphic design, industrial design, programming language design, the first job of design is empathy for the people who are going to be using and working with the thing that you're designing. And just as the size of the handle of a coffee mug matters and depends on the size of the hands of the people who are drinking coffee, so the conventions of a language depend on the people who are using it. And ultimately, with all design, the only way you can validate it is to let people try it out and see what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable. So I think as, as users of Swift, now that it's open source, the, the onus is very much on us to discuss what's working and not working and to send that feedback to Apple because there's a really just amazing and smart people on that team who are listening very carefully to what's going on and really interested in the conventions that emerge. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point because you know, Swift is a you know, client app language for OS 10 or Mac OS, iOS, where you know, that's the first thing, but that role is definitely expanding. Yes. So it may I, not be what people are writing Swift in five years from now. Indeed. And Latner's explicitly said that he would like to expand the domain of Swift as far as possible down to embedded systems, even if maybe having a, a lighter weight foundation is necessary, all the way to lightweight scripting. Basically, I think the team wants to see how far they can push it. And clearly, I think server-side Swift is the next frontier, which I'm excited about. That's a young community, but uh, it's an exciting one. I would, I would love to be writing Swift on the server. Yeah, definitely. That'll be, that'll be fun. I think Swift is a great language, and it's definitely, I can see it uh, developing a sweet spot server, server stuff.
It's an interesting question, though, since to date successful server languages haven't looked like Swift. In fact, this is a big one. It's hard for me to think, I cannot think of a successful, widely used server language today that does not have garbage collection. And Swift doesn't, and as far as I can tell, isn't going to. So what that means is in a language uh, like Java, Ruby, Python, JavaScript, any of these languages, uh, if you have a bunch of objects that form a reference cycle, that means A references B, references C, references back to A again, but that whole cycle is detached from your program as a whole, nothing references the cycle, it gets deallocated. Whereas in a language like Swift, you you only have reference counting to help you deallocate things. And Arc is great. It feels transparent most of the time. But you do have to make sure that at least at the moment you intend it to be deallocated, your object graph forms a tree. And the only weak, uh, only back references are weak or unowned references, which requires a lot of knowledge about the relationship between objects. And that sometimes can break encapsulation or at least make encapsulation more difficult. Like, uh, if you have reference counting, then part of your API contract is promising what you will and won't retain. It's rarely explicitly stated, but it's there. Server languages all have garbage. So one thing worth considering as Swift moves to the server is that right now, as far as I can think, there's no widely used server language that doesn't have garbage collection. And Swift comes close, arc reference counting, feels a lot like garbage collection most of the time, but it doesn't have cycle detection. And just academic aside, reference counting with cycle detection is equivalent mm -hmm. to garbage collection. They provide the same thing, even though there's implementation differences. But it's it's the case right now that uh, in Swift, you do have to make sure that your object graph, uh, at the time that you expect something to be deallocated, you have to make sure that your object graph is a tree and any back references are either weak or unowned. Uh, in a language like Java, JavaScript, Ruby, Python, it, it is possible to have um, a bunch of things all referencing each other, but when that entire glob of mutually referencing objects with all of its reference cycles, when it's no longer used anywhere, it goes away all at once. And there's some compelling reasons why maybe garbage collection works pretty well on the server. You can allocate a lot of things really fast and then just kind of throw away a big unused object graph all at once after a response is already on its way to a client. The Swift team has stated quite explicitly they are not interested in ad adding garbage collection to Swift. The reason is that a goal of Swift is deterministic performance. You don't want a garbage collector jumping in and making your iPhone feel all lurchy and, well, Android-like. Um, those little animation glitches you often get on Android are because of garbage collection as often as not. Android people have done amazing things to iron them out. They're now very hard to detect, but they're there. So can a language without garbage collection succeed on the server, or is it going to be a problem? It might be, because really in a, in a reference-counted language, what you retain and don't retain is an important part of your API contract if you're providing an API. And it's not something that we think about very often but it's there. It matters a lot. And 
because of that, reference counting can kind of break encapsulation or at least complicate encapsulation. So how's it going to play out on the server? Are abstractions that work in other languages going to become difficult because we don't have cycle collection? I don't know. Maybe I'm worrying over nothing. Uh, but it's, it's concerns like that and ones that nobody's even thought of that are just going to be uh, cropping up over the next year or two as server-side Swift evolves and matures. And I'm excited to see what comes out of it. I really don't know. No, that, that's a that's a good point, and I think the problems that we're handling on a lot of server side things are, you know, server side work are different than the client works. One example is like the domain model. You know, a lot of server apps I've done, the domain model can get very complex because you're aggregating data from all these different services and getting it together and see how they work together and building new things off them, and they all reference each other. And if you have to think about how this is going to be cleaned up with Arc, you might get into trouble. Whereas, a, you know, whereas you're, you know, if you're doing an iPhone app, you've got a couple services, three or four, maybe, and you're not dealing with that, those type of things as much. So it'll be interesting to see, it, does that hold back from Swift from like real large enterprise type things? Um, possibly, but it also might be a good thing for, you know, things that are being done by Go right now. So you have a compiled language that can run very fast and you don't do huge, humongous stuff with it, enterprise type stuff, but, you know, smaller services, you can handle well and also, you know, provide a really strong language, uh, language set of features. But I, I believe Go does have or is building garbage collection, right? Go has garbage collection. Yeah, yeah. So it has, as a, but I, I see Go and Swift technically a lot of the same type of things. Sure. So Go is garbage collected. But um, that means you can't really control when it gets collected. Yeah. Which is which a is problem for a lot of applications. Well, I mean, it's kind of okay on the server some of the time in a way that it's not when uh, animation is a problem. Like, in, you know, in the world of uh, smooth animation, apps, games, UI-based stuff, determinism is even more important than net performance. It's okay to be slightly slower if you're always consistent. Uh, and so on a server, at some levels of load, at least, it can be acceptable to have maybe one, one node just has to garbage collect for a few milliseconds while other nodes take the load. And that can be perfectly fine. Whereas say, if it's your phone and the UI is just a little bit twitchy and unresponsive and you lose this illusion of physical interactivity, it can be a real problem. Um, no, that's a good point. I've, I've heard of Go implementations where Garbage collection was a problem on the server because they're using Go because it's very fast. So they're expect, you're expecting a ton of requests and they didn't map something right or they blew up some, I can't remember the data type, that seems like an innocuous change, but yeah. line, <laughs> brings out tons, tons of different memory and has to get cleaned up with a yeah. bunch of, you know, uh, over and over again. So in that case, something like Arc, you know, you kind of know what you get into and you can control and you know what's happening. Yeah. Oh. You know, allocation and deallocation are not free, but at least they're consistent. Um, right. And it is true that, I mean, every, well, right now, Go, Swift, and Rust, this trifecta of languages, uh, sort of, I'd say, vying to replace C++, you know, they all have this promise of 
thinking high level, but getting C or C++ like performance. And A, that's wonderful. And I'm really excited about it. B, it's dangerous because we programmers, we get way too excited about performance. It's such a shiny object, the promise of better performance for free, the promise of faster, even when we don't need it. God, it makes us do stupid things. Um, I mean, how long ago was it that Knuth said that premature optimization is the root of all evil? I mean, that was decades ago, and it's still true. We some there's something about fast about that benchmark that says uh, your code will just run twenty percent faster. It makes developers jump at the latest shiny thing, and often undeservedly. Yeah, if that was true, Ruby would never have started. Indeed, working with uh, you know doing consulting, working with so many different companies at different phases and different sizes. So often, the concerns that you have in a in a huge deployment and a high traffic deployment, they're just not worry, worth worrying about for a startup that is trying to get its first hundred customers that just wants to validate an idea. The ability to rapidly iterate on a design and try different things out and see what users respond to, even with terrible performance, that can be so much more important than say quadrupling the response time of a server that already only takes, say, 100 milliseconds to get a response back. Uh, different organizations have such different problems. I, I was talking with a, a friend of mine who was at Google about the experience of some startups I'd worked with and, you know, very early phase startups. And we realized that so much of his thinking about web frameworks and web programming was shaped by the fact that at Google you know, if they sneeze publicly, they have 100,000 users. They can't launch anything small. It has to be performant and just fully vetted for this onslaught from day one, which makes it very difficult to do good design because they can't iterate on design. Uh, performance is the performance tuning is the enemy of rapid iteration. Performance tuned code is always more brittle, more complex. And Having simple, slow code that's easy to rework rapidly is a real asset. So in that sense, having so many users for free can actually be a liability. And I think is the reason why things like, for example, Google Wave maybe struggled. You know, I think Google Wave could have taken off if it only had a few hundred and then a few thousand users instead of having millions on day one. No, that's, a, that's a good point. I, I sat with a potential client you know, a month or so ago and... I'm talking about kind of what I do, and I can sign your API, and I got all these questions about, well, how do you make sure it scales? How do you make sure it does this? And you know, I asked them, like, well, what what's the application? Well, we're going to a, a beta test with you know 25, 50 users, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's just make sure this works first. Build something that works. See how people use it. I mean, I mean the thing with scaling, and you can, you don't know how it's going to scale. You don't know how users going to use the system, so you're mm -hmm. you're kind of guessing upfront like is this going to be a scalable solution i don't know you don't know until people actually use it right and you can do some educated design about the ways in which it might need to scale is it going to have lots of data lots of users lots of traffic for a small number of users etc but that doesn't mean that you have to solve everything it just means that you think right from the get-go about whether you're painting yourself into a corner and and don't solve all the performance problems right from the beginning. There's also the, uh, you know, we often confuse thinking about performance and scalability. 
switching from a slower language to a faster language doesn't make an app more scalable. It just makes better use of the CPU that you already have. Um, but if your problem is, for example, that your app relies on mm, having some shared state in server memory and making that shared state stick with a client through the length of some stateful session interaction, that's a problem no matter how fast your language is because you can't just freely load balance. Um, so, you know, there's a difference between thinking about how your app is going to scale up to larger database, more nodes, more whatever, more, more of whatever you're going to get more of. There's a difference between thinking about how you're going to scale up versus how fast it is in raw terms right now. I'm trying to think how do you take this back to client development because we're <laughs> I show. That was awesome stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, so even though uh, Swift 3 now, uh, a lot of things are just feeling really good, such a pleasure to work with. There's areas of the language that are still rocky and in development just in the way that optionals were in Swift 1. Two big ones that stick out for me are uh, first the dispatch rules for protocol extensions, which probably just made half the audience's eyes cross with what of the what. But the the question of when Swift uses static or dynamic dispatch, I feel like that question is not entirely settled and the compiler needs maybe some more warnings and some more explicitness uh, to help sort that out and make protocol-oriented programming something that everybody can really grasp and work with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the second area of real pain still in Swift 3 is generics. Uh, Swift's type system is not fully baked. And uh, much to my chagrin, a lot of the really important work on it has been deferred until Swift 4, which was fair enough. I feel like already maybe they tried to stuff too many new features and not enough cooling downtime into Swift 3. But you will find now uh, it's very difficult. For example, it's really difficult in Swift to have a list of lists of different things. It's difficult to have a function say that gives you the number of items in a list without knowing what it's a list of. That's possible, but add one more wrinkle and it quickly becomes either impossible or you have to just sort of cast to any and work backwards. So go, if you're interested, uh, look at the Swift evolution discussion around existentials and generic types. Lots of interesting work going on right now, and it's going to have to go through a similar period of sort of uh, iterative, proposing, vetting, trying it out in practice, and recalibrating. And that's the work right now in Swift that I'm most excited about. Yeah, very cool. You mentioned the the protocol dispatch versus dynamic or static in the last episode, and I'm very glad I read that because I ran into that problem three or four weeks later. And I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, that's what this is. Oh, my word. Yep. This, is, this is insane. It, it is. And, and it makes a lot of sense. There's good rationale behind all of it. But lack of compiler warnings, plus the expectation that Swift sets up, which is that if you're doing things by default, it's probably safe. Uh, this is something that kind of violates that expectation. The blog post in question uh, is, uh, I believe it's called The Ghost of Swift Bugs Future by Alexandra Salazar. Good read. Uh, every Swift programmer should at least skim it and know what that problem smells like. You will read it eventually, either before yep. or after you encounter <laughs> this problem. <laughs> exactly so. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and push this into the picks. Jane, do you have some picks for us? 
All right, I'm going to do one pick. It's a, a documentary. It's on YouTube. It's 10 years old, I think, it, probably 2005, 2006. And it's on BBSs. And I realized this week that I have to explain what a BBS is because I asked someone of a somewhat younger generation, do you know what a BBS is? He's like, oh, yeah, the British Broadcasting System. I'm like, well, no. <laughs> no. Uh, they broadcast all that British all over the place. That's what everyone was doing on computers in the 80s, just uh, downloading stuff yep. from the BBS. Uh, so much quite. British. Uh, bulletin board systems was the way people with computers talked to each other before there was an internet. And there's a BBS, the documentary, and it's, it was just done. I think it was basically done by one person in a small or a small group. And they've got six episodes, and it gets a little bit verbose at times, but there are some episodes that are really good and you know, if you're around that time or curious about how people, you know, are our forebearers or us as younger, me as a teenager, you know, communicated and shared data before there was Facebook, Snapchat and all that. Um, we got on a, a modem and we called some other guys, some other persons, a computer, and we uploaded data. And this kind of talks about the people that started it, uh, starting from the 70s, the people that wrote the first system up through the 80s. Um, there's six episodes. You don't need to watch all of them. The first one is really good. The second one on the sysops is, is pretty good. The one on hacking and freaking, I think it was pretty good. The rest, you know, watch it. But I don't know that you really need to spend 45 minutes listening to people talk about ASCII artists fighting amongst each other. Um, but you might. So that's my pick. BBS, the documentary on YouTube. Good stuff. Awesome. Rod, what are your picks? All right. My first, I have one pick, and it's from Uncle Bob himself. He has a site called um, cleancoders.com, and on there he has lots of videos that teach programming concepts and design and whatnot. And he just published a mobile app case study, um, which uses Swift with uh, TDD and dependency injection and clean architecture and, and all the goodies. And uh, so I checked that out. All right. Sounds good. I've got a quick pick really quickly, um, and that is I've been reading a book called The 12-Week Year, and it's a book that basically outlines productivity um, from the standpoint of a lot of people set yearly goals for their business or their team or whatever, and then what winds up happening is that last quarter of the year, they wind up kind of sprinting ahead to try and achieve whatever it was that was their goal. And so what they what they basically point out is that if you have a 12 week year, then you you can just do this every quarter of the year and make your make your goals happen. And then you, what, what happens is all that work that happens that fourth quarter to get your goals done. You have that happen every quarter and you get basically a year's worth of work done in 12 weeks. Anyway, it's really interesting. And I love the way that they organize everything. A lot of strategies and stuff in there. So if you're running your own business, or running a team and trying to figure out, okay, how do we think about where we're headed? And, you know, now that we have a vision for where we're going, how do we get there? Then this is a terrific book. Uh, Paul, what are your picks? Uh, I've got a whole cornucopia here. First, I just want to recommend uh, if you're migrating or going to migrate to Swift 3, uh, Erica Sedun has a book on Swift 3 migration. I think it's called Swift 2 to 3 full of just really useful 
arcane stuff that's important. Um, good overview of everything you might encounter in the whole process. Uh, I, I think it's good stuff. I had a chance to um, see some of the drafts as she was editing it and give feedback on it as I was doing some Swift 3 migra migrations and even just like uh, reading her drafts as I was working myself, I, I found useful information in there. So go check it out. It's an ebook. Uh, second, I have a pair of links. If uh, if anybody's interested in math, there was, I thought, a really good article on uh, how we teach math, especially how we teach math in elementary school, and how much math is really about creativity, exploration, problem solving, and how you can bring that as a parent or an educator into math education. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And this uh, this New York Times post about it just really laid out some good concrete stuff. If you're interested in the topic, I also highly recommend a classic essay called Lockhart's Lament, which is a, a much grander, more poetic and real rah-rah sort of treatment of the same thing. And uh, if you're somebody who just has always sort of cringed at the idea of math, um, read Lockhart's Lament, at least the first page. I think it'll change how you imagine what math is. The truth is that a lot of us who got turned off math uh, in K-12 education have never even done math. We've done rote computation, which uh, is not fun. Uh, Lockhart says in an essay, uh, he says, students say math class is stupid and boring, and very often they are correct. So that pair of things is a second pick. And third, uh, there was a really beautiful documentary. This is much heavier stuff, but uh, worth checking out if you want to uh, get your head out of some code and into the world we live in. Uh, there was an amazing short, maybe 15-minute documentary called If I Sleep for an Hour, Then 30 People Will Die, about somebody who was a forger forging identity papers uh, in Nazi-occupied France uh, really just riveting thing. And it's uh, in the post, there's a news article that goes with it, but it's worth watching the video. And if you're interested in that topic and things happening uh, today along the same lines, uh, there was an article about somebody in France today uh, helping smuggle people through Europe and whether that's ethical and it's clearly illegal, should he be arrested for it? So go check out that documentary. Uh, it, it, certainly left an impression on me. All right. Very cool. If uh, people want to follow up with you, see what you're doing, or I think you mentioned you're a freelancer, hire you, where should they go? Uh, if you're looking to hear me uh, pontificate and rant and rave, I'm, I'm on Twitter at In The Hands, which is uh, a name taken from my uh, piano world, but now has sort of uh, become piano and code stuff. Uh, Twitter In The Hands. If you're looking to hire me, you should talk to uh, Bust Out Solutions uh, or tweet me directly, though I refer most client work to Bust Out. Um, I'll say if you have a particularly uh, difficult, tricky, swift question and you just want me to do a sort of uh, SWAT team consult on something, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you. And for that, you should reach me on Twitter. But if you're looking to get a whole project built, then the folks at Bust Out, really good people. Um, great designers there and just straight shooters who do a nice job with everything they do. It's why I choose to work with them. Um, so those two contact points. All right. Well, thank you for coming. We'll go ahead and wrap the show up and we'll catch everyone next week. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul.